Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We just got back from a weekend getaway to Camden, Maine for our anniversary, and it was just the most delightful day. Oh my gosh, we had so much fun. We uh, ate way too much, Mm. probably drank a little too much. Maybe, um, but it was just a, a lovely experience. And then the next morning, we we go for our final breakfast in Camden. We go to a bagel shop, and uh, the line, you know, we make we place our order, we sit down, and as we're waiting, um, a couple of sweet little old ladies come in, probably in their eighties, just sweet little old ladies, and they're standing there in their like khakis and their probably a Talbot's top. So I go up to get the bagels, and before I pick them up off the counter, I reach over to hit the uh, hand sanitizer thing, the push nozzle. Oh, it was in a pump. Yeah, it was in a pump, and apparently it was crusty around the edge. Oh, no. And so I went, I hit it, and instead of it going into my hand, it squirted out all over this little old lady's neck and top of her Talbot blouse. Now you don't know for sure that it was a Talbot's blouse. No, right? I don't. I'm, I'm you just imagine. I'm, I'm assuming it was. It right. was very neatly tailored. Yeah. Well, they seemed very neat and prim, and the fact that you squirted hand sanitizer all over one of them, uh, you'd think would have upset them. She laughed. She yeah. was so good natured about it. <laughs> but I was so embarrassed. It was like I, I covered her with this geriatric germ-free bukkake. <laughs> Immediately, you were like, did you want to eat outside instead? Yeah, I had I to eat like, my... You just want to leave, don't you? <laughs> yep, I ate in the parking lot. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Other than that, it was a great stay. It was. <laughs> Thanks, Camden. I'm glad we were leaving right after that. Right. Before I get started, a uh, bit of a trigger warning. This one's a rough one. At the beginning of the 1900s, Marrakesh, which, you know, we want to go to, along with pretty much every other place pretty in the world, uh, Marrakesh was seen as, as kind of like an epicenter for trading within the African uh, continent. Um, many people would, would come and go, pass through their traders and um, business people. A lot of foreigners, 
They all came and went all the time, making it very difficult for local guards to follow up with the rising crime rate. Things were really starting to become a bit dangerous in Marrakesh at the turn of the century. And because of the transient nature of so many people, it was hard to uh, to follow up on it. Right. In 1902, 10 women had disappeared from the city overnight with no trace left behind. Oh, wow. And the community, they didn't like it, but they assumed that probably these women had been kidnapped by foreigners coming through the city. Mm-hmm. By 1906, another 30 women had been reported as missing. So... Authorities started thinking, "Mm, maybe there's more to this than what we thought. It was April 1906. One of the last women to disappear was traced back to the shop of a local cobbler. The elderly man was in his 70s. He was named Haj Muhammad Mesfui, a shoemaker by trade, but he was also what was called a public letter writer. The job was kind of like a holdover from colonialism. It involved acting as kind of an intermediary. Uh, for legal matters. Like to, a grant writer, kind of? Yeah, well, when when France was ruling Morocco, uh, if you wanted to petition the government for something, you had to go through this process. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like almost, I guess, an attorney, but okay. anybody could do it that apparently could write. So he, he would help write the letters for legal matters to colonial authorities. He was a quiet man. He eked out an existence for himself and an older lady who lived with him named Rahali or Anna depending upon your your source material. So they go to the shoemaker, the cobbler's shop, mm-hmm. and there they find in his garden and under his house, 20 decapitated bodies. No. Oh, This no. little old man, this sweet little old cobbler guy. He was a cobbler. Cobblers aren't violent by nature. Now, this was confusing for law enforcement officials because they find all these bodies underneath the cobbler's shop, but the cobbler's this sweet little old guy living with this sweet little old woman, not exactly the right profile for a serial killer. Right. He's about repairing souls, not stealing them. <laughs> but the evidence, of course, was was pretty overwhelming. So they brought it, brought them both in for questioning. It was really more a matter of formality than anything else, because they really didn't think these this sweet little old couple had anything to do with it. But then again, you know, there were all these bodies in their yard. Bunch of bodies. At first, the interrogation went as expected. Neither one of them really said much of anything or shared any information as to how or why the bodies uh, ended up in their yard. But then it appears as though, I'm going to call her Anna because it's just easier to pronounce. Sure. She slipped up and said something that made law enforcement suspicious. So as was the custom in Marrakesh in those days, if you suspected somebody of something that they did something wrong, uh, you uh, you torture them until they confessed. So uh, once the torture began, that's exactly what she did. She confessed quickly and with details that only somebody involved in the crime would know. And she implicated him as well. Oh, wow. It was later determined by the parents of one of the girls uh, that her last whereabouts was with this Anna. And that further confirmed their suspicions. Miss Fuey, the 70-year-old village cobbler and public letter writer, along with Anna, his geriatric accomplice, were uh, cunning, calculated serial killers. And the motive, first and foremost, was just the thrill of the kill. But it was also money. Had a quick question. Do we know, had they been killing for long or was this a newfound old person activity? No, they'd been doing it for years. Oh, wow. Um, 36 women 
in total went missing. They found 20 of them there at uh, at their house. Oh, I thought because you had said like 10 went missing in one night and then a bunch went missing. I didn't know if it was like all at once or if. Yeah, no, been... initially it was. Okay. It was uh, within a short period of time okay. that the uh, first 10 were reported missing. And then over a period of time, you know, here and there and. But because of the the transient nature of the city, yep. they weren't able to nail it down to it being a single source of exactly. the disappearance. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Quotes from a cablegram from that time from Tangier add a lot of details to the story. Apparently, what would happen is that the old woman would bring young girls who needed a public letter written back to the cobbler's shop. He would then offer them a glass of wine, being a, you know, a friendly, sweet little old man. Of course, you know... He roofied it or something. He put some drugs in it. And uh, as soon as they lost consciousness, he would drag them into his back garden and decapitate them. He would then steal all their belongings and bury the headless bodies under his shop or back in the in the garden area. What did he do with the heads? Well, he buried those two, but, oh, you okay. know. Just separately? Um, unclear. Rude. The citizens of Marrakesh were understandably horrified. Now... Anna died from the torturous investigation. They tortured her to death, but she was the lucky one. Days after the crimes were unveiled, the old man's fate was decided. Mesfui was condemned to crucifixion, which was a common punishment in Morocco at the time. Now, the punishment was not well received by the resident foreign officials in Morocco. Again, it was Morocco was um, a French colony. They considered crucifixion a cruel and inhumane punishment. So, Masfui was not crucified, but they thought up something that, that well, it's kind of a loophole. They wanted this guy to suffer. Sure. And so, authorities said no crucifixion. After his arrest, he was taken to the city jail. It was decided that he would be tortured slowly. The order of the execution actually had the signature of the sultan himself on it. And the sentence was to be carried out in the great square of the city in full view of all the people. He was sentenced to daily trips to the Marrakesh market. The torturing started on May 15th, and according to documentation in the Times and Democrat newspaper, uh, he was whipped with switches of thorny acacia. Quote, The cobbler was stripped to his waist, while two assistants held the victim's arms outstretched. Ten strokes were given each day, and each stroke drew blood. The number of strokes was kept down because he was an old man, and the people of Marrakesh had no will of letting him die too early. So they wanted to drag this out, and they took his age into consideration. Wow, yeah. Just to clarify, so the the rule was no crucifixion. That's, right. that's too cruel. Too cruel. But because this specific torture hadn't been mentioned, they could still do yep. it. Yep. So there has to be like a specific rule for each thing. Apparently. No whips with acacia straps. Okay, fine. (laughs) Okay, but also no waterboarding with urine. (sighs) Fine. Fine, whatever. All right. No trampling to death by way of warthogs. (laughs) Trampled to death by warthogs. It was said that he was led to the market and he would be whipped, screaming for mercy. But then... They only whipped him 10 times. They'd take him back to the jail and apply a healing ointment to his back. And the next day, 
he'd be taken back out to the square, whipped again just 10 times, and then taken back to the jail, and the ointment was applied again. This went on for like a month and a half, every day. Oof, that skin probably was not in good shape. (sighs) This, of course, was great entertainment to the passersby. Ew. Uh, In fact, you could almost set your watch by it. People came every day to see him get whipped and hear him scream and beg for mercy. Gross. After weeks of this torture, he was heard begging those who were whipping him to please end his suffering, just kill him. Instead, they whip him ten times, take him back to the jail cell, and put ointment on his back. Now again, many, many weeks had passed, and at this point, his back was beginning to be covered with scar tissue and toughened up, calloused, essentially making the flogging less painful for him. So they had to decide what they were going to do now. The decision was made to end the public floggings. But where do you go from there? It was decided he would be bricked up alive inside a wall. This would be the grand finale. Okay. On June 11th, he was brought to the town square one last time. It was a Monday. Thousands of people came to witness the execution. According to, again, the Times and Democrat newspaper, quote, a death by walling up alive had not been seen in Marrakesh for many years. But there were those who told stories that the victims had been known sometimes to live for over a week. And so the good news spread to the people that this guy was going to suffer greatly. And they brought provisions and the caravansaries were crowded. And there had not yet been any decree about no walling someone up no, alive. No, he was. they were good to go on that. <laughs> so they lead him back to the t- uh, town square, and he assumes that he's going to be flogged again and taken back for more ointment. Um, being walled up alive was probably the last thing in his mind. He had no idea what was going to happen. Right. But as he approached the square, he saw that the crowds were much, much larger than ever before. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, he figured at this point he was probably going to die, but he was grateful. Right. Because he didn't want to continue to go through this torture. He had taken his whippings with a, quote, fatalistic fortitude, hoping that he might die from them. But as he approached the town square, he noticed something was different. The jailers had carved a space out in a wall, in a town wall, just big enough for a man to stand in. They dragged him toward this hole. The jailers struggled with him. He was screaming for mercy. They dragged him into the hole and they chained him so that he he had to stand up. He was chained standing up inside a hole in the wall just as big as a coffin, pretty much. But then they didn't wall him up immediately. Oh, no? They allowed the crowd to pelt him with the plentiful animal manure found in the town square. Oh, jeez. And awful from the local butcher shop. After that, they bricked him up as far as his head. And then they allowed the crowd to continue to pelt him with uh, horse shit and entrails. All right, all right. That's very creative. The final step was to give him bread and water right before they completed the entombment. The idea behind that was bread and water once again would keep him alive as long as possible and create a painful, agonizing death. Mm -hmm. The uh, provisions were provided so that he could live long enough to suffer more. Sure. That was the idea behind it. Finally, the last stones were placed. His muffled cries could still be heard, and there he stayed for days. His screams were heard at all hours of the day and night. Market-goers would walk by, and they would hear him screaming for mercy, but they would stop and yell back at him. They would taunt him. They would wish him a slow, agonizing death. Now, it did take two days, but his cries began to grow weaker, and then they stopped altogether. 
He was dead after just two days. It was said that the uh, crowds of people were extremely disappointed that he had died so quickly. Sure. My information came from Wikipedia, Ranker, History of Yesterday, and the Times and Democrat newspaper. Oof, that was a rough one. Hajj Mohammed Masfui, also known as the Marrakesh Arch Killer, and a darn fine cobbler. Do they still allow the walling up, or was that eventually no. decreed? That, I, I, probably uh, after that, they said, no crucifixion or walling up. The whole trampled by warthogs, go for it. And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, five medical chart bloopers. These are hilarious assessments found on people's medical charts. Number five, both breasts are equal and reactive to light and accommodation. Number four, patient's chin cannot touch the table. Number three, on the second day, the knee was better, and on the third day, it disappeared. Number two, remnants of a soldier can be seen in her vagina. Vagina? vagina? <laughs> no, you don't get to do that one over again. That's just how you talk. Vagina. No, stop it. Vagina. <laughs> God, my main accent keeps leaking through. Gotta have some pizza. And then I'm gonna examine her vagina. <laughs> Didn't you used to drive a Volver? Yeah. And number one, it should be noted that there is no noticeable difference in temperature between the legs. <laughs> okay, noted. <laughs> You're listening to the Box of Oddities. The question is, why? I've gotta tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app. 
made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Box of Oddities. With Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Lauren wrote to us from Central California. She said, uh, hey, you two, let me first preface this by thanking you for getting me through long, long days at work. I started listening at the end of 2020, and I'm glad as it gives me hours of entertainment during boring work days. Now to the point. I have a gorgeous cat dude. I named him Henry. His name evolved into Henry Who. We do that with our animals, too. And now he's Henry Hoosel. Jethro's any Hoosel stuck in my head, and now Henry Hoosel has a new moniker. Thanks, Jethro. <laughs> Hope you two are doing fantastic. Thanks, Lauren, and give our love to Henry Hoosel. Who's a good little Hoosel? Who's a good little Hoosel, Henry Hoosel? Say, Katrina, mm. would you weave me a tail? In other words, <laughs> what you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What? What what you got for me? All right. She is spritzed with expensive perfume. Sparkling wine is in the air. Bands take turns playing songs while she's danced in the open air. What a glorious night for a corpse. Oh, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> I thought you'd like that intro. That was great. Thank you. You you were using your video game narration voice. <laughs> She is a part of Famadion. Famadion is a funerary tradition in Madagascar. It's an important celebration for the people to spend time with their loved ones, both living and deceased. It literally translates to the turning of the bones, and it's a sacred ritual that's practiced by some ethnic groups. Though millions practice this, often in conjunction with their various religious faiths, it's not always the same understanding of what it means to be dead. So please understand that when I'm saying is not like across the board or that everyone who partakes in the ceremony partakes in all the same parts or for the same reasons. Okay. 
So according to these tribes, it's thought that their ancestors serve as intermediaries between the living and God and therefore have the power to intervene in events on Earth. Like a public letter writer in the colonial days. Something like that, yes. And it's a common belief that the spirit doesn't immediately depart after death. The, they don't depart until the body has fully decomposed. Hmm. So as long as the body remains, the spirit is still part of this world. Let me let me ask you this question. Assuming that there is life after death mm-hmm. and assuming that you get a choice like that, mm-hmm. would you stick around and watch your body rot? Oh, I don't think I'd care. Yeah, but would you want to see it? I mean, would that... Do I have other things I could be doing? Yeah. Like what? Oh, I don't know. Golf? You sure? I'd love to go golfing. It's well known the Almighty has a beautiful par three ethereal golf course. <laughs> Must be a lynx. <laughs> no, the Almighty. Lynx don't golf. They don't have thumbs. (laughs) Malagasy families must care for their loved ones and ancestors until they can pass into the afterlife. The afterlife. That's the one where that weird Muppet tries to eat their cats. Sure. And that's when their body has rejoined the earth. And they believe that this celebration, the turning of the ancestors' bodies, helps speed up the... Well, that makes sense. So a traditional astrologer known as an ombisse consults the zodiac to determine the day to open and close the tomb. And then there are those who are involved in this that are like the organizers. And then there are the guests, because this process, the, the organizing of this event can take months and months. And part of that is that they, like I said, the date has to be chosen very, it's a very important process of selecting the date. You got to get the right caterer. Yeah. It's a party. It is. It is. It's a big event. They have multiple bands who come and perform. So like wedding bands, but prolonged funeral bands. That's right. That's and cool. Guests and relatives will travel for miles and miles and sometimes days to attend this two-day celebration. Usually they'll bring a donation in the form of money or alcohol to those who have organized the event, which is kind of nice. It's like a host gift. That's lovely. And the day before the ceremony, relatives and family members, many that have traveled these long distances and haven't seen each other since the last event, come together to introduce the new members of the family. So those who have married in and those who have been born get to meet the rest of the family. And for some, that's the only opportunity that they have to see their family. This is like they may not get together for everyone's weddings, but they get together for this. No kidding. That's fascinating. So many of the tombs are partially underground with a chamber in which the bodies of the ancestors are kept on shelves. During the ceremony, the loved ones are exhumed and the bodies are carefully uh, wrapped up in special straw mats. Then the procession takes place. Basically, it's a dead guy parade. Mm -hmm. Families carry their loved ones above their heads back to the village. They dance. They listen to music. They celebrate the life and the power of their ancestors. Do they have a DJ? What's up, party people? I'm sure there's some sort of MC. There's there's got to be like a head of the the group. Who's, I would I would totally go to this. I don't, I don't know if it's a boots and pants kind of boots event. Boots and pants and boots and pants and boots and pants. And but uh, you know they they have to have someone leading the way. Parade master. What's that guy called? The general. Uh, uh, the uh, grand grand marshal. That guy. Yeah, probably they don't have that. The bodies are then laid out, usually side by side on the ground. They're cleaned 
because um, the, any dust or like excess dirt and, and business that's gotten mm-hmm, in there mm-hmm. is going to impede the body from doing what it needs to do. And then they're dressed in fresh burial shrouds. People can place something that the person liked when he or she was alive in the new sheets. Uh, For men, it might be cigarettes or alcohol. For women, perfumes or lipsticks. And for children, people commonly place sweets. Now that they're freshly wrapped, the direct relatives dance with the bodies. They present them to the new members of the family. Like, so glad that you married my niece. Mm. Here's our great-great-grandfather's bits okay all right so it's not like a morbid ventriloquist act they don't like move the guy's jaw up and down no oh hello kids stop it you know that's not the case okay help like that no they don't do that no boy i'm being really disrespectful i apologize During the ceremony, family members may ask their ancestors for blessings, share family news with them, or tell stories about their life. The festival usually lasts two days. The first day is called the Fidurana, or the Entry Day. And the second day is known as the Famanosana, or the Wrapping Day. I do apologize for having butchered those words. I know I did. Let's move on. The celebration ends before nightfall uh, due to beliefs of negative energy and evil powers that the night brings. And before nightfall happens, that's when the bodies are returned to the tomb or reburied. The first time the deceased is buried, it goes into the tomb feet first. But once the famadian is complete, the bones should be returned head first because the bones are now considered to be living in a new world as ancestors. And they repeat that every time they put them back, they flip them around. They don't and... flip them. They just there's the one switch. OK. So okay. initially they go in as dead people. And after that, they go back in as ancestors. Gotcha. The tomb is then closed. The family may take a few moments to reflect upon the the celebration of the previous days. And then they return to the village. This whole event is really on the decline. So the government has issued rulings forbidding the practice for individuals who have died of plague. Well, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And early missionaries discouraged the practice. Many Evangelical Christian don't practice it, even though most see it as a cultural event rather than a religious one. And it's very expensive. Traditionally, the shrouds are made of fine silk, which can be of great expense to the family. And families can spend more on the tombs than on their homes because it's so much a part of their identity. Wow. It's how they care for their ancestors. So not only do they celebrate in their their living family and care for their elder living relatives, they give that same love and appreciation and respect to those who have already passed. Meeting the ancestors again, one historian said, is a moment of happiness and joy, and sadness is not allowed. It is an occasion to give ancestors the love, attention, and care that they need until they are able to continue on their spiritual journey. This reminds me a lot of the Malaysian ceremony of the walking dead. Yes. Yeah. Very, very similar in, in the sense that they, they, they bring them out of the grave. They put new clothes on them, uh, but then they make them walk. Yeah. You know, they kind of like tip them back and forth. So they're walking, they make them, you know, go on a parade and then walk back to their grave, which seems cruel. And then they put cigarettes in their mouths. Put cigarettes in their mouths. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be fun. Sure. I 
think it's kind of nice. I mean, I can see how it wouldn't be, um, you know, to to people who grew up the way that you and I did, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. I can see how it seemed like really weird and, and mm-hmm. unpleasant, you know, with the dead bodies and all. But I think it's kind of nice, the attention given to those who have passed. I, I would agree. And to think like... A lot of us don't know who our great-grandparents are or our great-great-grandparents. Certainly, we don't know who they are. Well, we might know their name, Mm. but we have very little knowledge in most cases of who they were, what they did, what they thought. That, I think, is changing now because we're we're all leaving digital footprints. Yeah. Future generations can go back and mine through our social media and get a better idea of what we what we were like. So yeah. keep that in mind next time you put up a political post. I got most of my information from FuneralGuide.uk, Culture Trip, New York Times, and CNN, and of course Wikipedia. Great story. Thank you. And happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary to you! I had a wonderful weekend with you. I had the best time. Except when I stained the octogenarian's blouse. That was, yeah, awkward, for sure. A quick thank you for those of you who have uh, joined us on Patreon. We do appreciate your support. It helps immensely. Uh, We have some big announcements coming up that we'll tell you about sometime in the next, uh, well, next few shows. Mm -hmm. But you'll hear it on Patreon first. You'll hear it on Patreon first. And if you uh, would like to join us on Patreon, the... uh, the Order of Freaks is the name of the uh, organization that we have put together loosely. You'll get uh, episodes a day early. You get them ad-free. Uh, you get a lot of other stuff like our home phone number and some stuff like that. Discounts on live show tickets. Lots of great stuff. Yeah, we've got a phone calls with the Freak Fam coming up uh, in a little less than a week. Yeah, this coming Sunday. Still got time to join us. Go to theboxofoddities.com. Click on the support us link. And many, many thanks. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Just want to double check on this pronunciation so I don't fuck it up. I had to look up how to pronounce acacia. No one likes it when I fuck up the pronunciation. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.